The secret to well-being is discovering the power that is your birthright, the power to create a happier, healthier life drawn from our own vast internal resources. Join Jules and her guests as they gently guide you to shift your perspective from the familiar negative to the divinely connected, a place that will not only positively impact your world, but possibly shift the planet. It's all right here on Law of Attraction Talk Radio. Well, welcome to Law of Attraction Talk Radio. I'm Jules from beautiful Southern California. Glad you could be with me as we are talking a lot of science about energy, about death, and even near-death experiences. And what, you may ask, does this have to do with the Law of Attraction? Well, it has everything to do with it because we are all energy down to uh, the very core of our thoughts. So, of course, we're learning more and more scientifically about our spiritual connection and we're losing some of those dogmatic beliefs that really keep us powerless. Today, science is proving what we all know intuitively to be correct. Using science to back up our intuition leads the collective consciousness into this powerful awakening. My goal is to awaken people to their power in order to create the golden age of peace and prosperity and abundance for all. So tonight I'm going to be talking about Russian scientist Konstantin Korokov who photographed people at the moment of their death and what the photographs show of the energy of the soul leaving the body. Then I'm going to be talking about the Harvard-trained neurosurgeon, Dr. Eben Alexander, who wrote a best-selling book about his near-death experience. And he came back with things as a scientist, knowing that some of these things that he experienced just could not be disproven. And then we're going to be talking with Dr. Jeffrey Long, about his extensive library of near-death experiences. Now, what I'm hoping that you're going to walk away with is a better understanding that there really is no such thing as death, especially what we were taught originally about it. Now, this is such a fascinating show. I really want you to pay attention and sit back, relax, kick up your feet, and just get ready to remember what we're talking about right here on Law of Attraction Talk Radio. We'll be right back. It's here. It's hot. And it's a must read. It's the science behind the Law of Attraction magazine. Every issue brings you great articles and in-depth how-tos from all your favorite Law of Attraction experts, authors, scientists, and medical professionals. Go to lawofattractionmagazine.net. That's lawofattractionmagazine.net. You're listening to the Law of Attraction Radio Network. Heard by millions worldwide through 38 internet radio stations and in over 135 countries. Come join us on Facebook for your daily dose of inspiration and action that reveals the secret within you. 
You can find us at facebook.com forward slash Law of Attraction Radio Network. That's facebook.com forward slash Law of Attraction Radio Network. Okay, we are back. Just want to remind people that we're signing people up to receive the print version of our Law of Attraction magazine. If you'd like to sign up for a description and have it delivered to your home via mail, just go to lawofattractionmagazine.net. Tune in at the Law of Attraction Radio Network at loaradionetwork.com and you can see a whole bunch of ways to listen to my show. Now let's talk some science, shall we? Russian scientist Konstantin Karakov is the director of research at the Institute of Physical Culture in St. Petersburg, Russia, and has even been endorsed by the Ministry of Health of Russia. He is well known for enhancing the Curian photography used to see energy or auras around all living things such as plants and animals and humans. Now, Karakov developed a bioelectrographic camera in which the world can see a blue translucent light leaving the body gradually upon death. Now, this light is what he calls or refers to as the life energy or consciousness or even the soul. According to Karakov, and his documented studies, the navel and the head are the first to lose their life force. And the groin and the heart are the last areas where the energy leaves. Now, this actually confirms what many hospice nurses report by observing the deaths of their patients. Karakov did a two-year research study in which he photographed deaths attributed to old age and young people resulting from death of an illness and even people who suffered a violent and unexpected death. Now, this is what's so unique because with the unexpected death, through his translucent light, he saw that this kind of death usually manifests a state of confusion and even a return to the body in the days following death. That's unreal, isn't it? He explained that it could be the result of unused energy or, on a side note for me, maybe because of the confusion, it is the soul trying to get back into the body. Very fascinating. Now, many countries and hospitals are now using this type of camera to monitor diseases in patients such as those with cancer, because it can detect all kinds of biophysical imbalances. In simpler terms, they are using this new technology to read the energy or aura of the body for healing purposes. It's been so effective that they can even detect emotions and untruths based on the energy field. So yes, his studies show conclusively that the energy of the human, of life on this planet does not die. It simply takes on another form. Here we are again. Science is proving that there is no such thing as death. You know, I really find Korakoff to be so fascinating 
as I started gathering more information so that I could do the show. Basically, he has virtually tested the energy in all living entities. And when he was asked about the energy and quality of food, he said, well, the food in America is not so good especially the energy in the animals that we eat because of the antibiotics and hormones, which actually decrease the vital life force energy. He talked of GMOs as well and noted that the seeds energy are different from the organic seeds. And he went on to say something very, very interesting. He said that the tests that have been performed on mice using GMOs or eating GMOs revealed that the most damage show up in future generations through mutations because of the changes to the body's DNA. In other words, the full complexity of GMOs will show up in your children and in their children. So it's time to stop eating the processed foods and the GMO fruits and vegetables and go search for locally grown organic food. Karakov talked about the energy of the water and concluded that water is either live or dead. Live water is the flowing water where the energy builds, such as spring water flowing over those rocks. And this makes so much sense because for those of you who have stood next to a waterfall, you could definitely feel the powerful energy from that waterfall. And this is the same kind of energy that needs to be in our water so that we can obtain a healthy life force energy. Tap water, he concluded, is dead water and especially reverse osmosis water because reverse osmosis is basically stripping away everything from the water, including the energy. Yes, it's taking out all the poisons, but it's also reducing the flow of energy. So that is not good water for us. Now, I also found it very interesting that scientists in Russia are not paid, which means that they are not restricted on what they choose to research and develop. Whereas in America, our scientists are dependent upon grants, which specifies exactly what they must work on. Hence, our scientists are dependent upon payment and just are not free to explore fabulous areas that is actually encouraged in Russia. It's very interesting, isn't it? Now let's talk about Dr. Eben Alexander, a Harvard-trained neurosurgeon. For many years, he did not believe in any kind of afterlife. Life ended and that was all there was to it. End of story. And of course, that was the way Western medicine practiced. That was until he laid in a coma for seven days due to bacterial meningitis. Now, during this time, he had a near-death experience in which he had a heavenly experience and some not-so-heavenly experiences. But after seven days, he woke up completely cured of the meningitis. 
And as he came back, he recalled some vivid experiences that literally changed his life. He understood that the veil that lies between this world and the next is cleverly constructed by an intelligence infinitely greater than our own. And that veil is there for a reason. This earthly realm, as he puts it, is where we are meant to learn the lessons of unconditional love, compassion, forgiveness, and acceptance. On the other side, space no longer exists in the way it does here in our own dimension. Space becomes an illusion. This was vividly confirmed by internationally acclaimed movie critic Roger Ebert, who reviewed films for 46 years until his death from cancer in 2013. Roger Ebert was an agnostic. He would say he didn't know if he could believe in God, but during the last week of his life, he began to tell his wife, Chaz, that he had glimpses of another place, a world beyond this one. At first, she was concerned that these were hallucinations, perhaps brought on by his medication. But Roger was calm and adamant about what he had seen. Heaven was a vastness that you couldn't even imagine, a place where the past, present, and future were happening all at once. The day before he died, Roger placed a note in his wife's hand. It said simply, quote, this is all an elaborate hoax, unquote. He wasn't talking about his illness. He was referring to the world itself. That's right, because this is just an illusion, and Alexander goes on to explain. In the afterlife, all communication is telepathic. There are no need for spoken words, nor any separation between the self and everything else happening around you. All the questions you ask in your mind were immediately answered to you telepathically as well. In other words, energy becomes communication whereas words simply cannot express the true meaning behind the thought behind the energy and also we all have that voice within our head and if we can configure that to be our inner guidance we will be getting more infinite intuitive information given to us simply by the power of our minds. When asked what Dr. Alexander wants everyone to know about the spiritual realm, he answers saying that you are precious and you're infinitely loved more than you can possibly ever imagine. You are safe. You are never ever alone. The unconditional and perfect love of the source energy neglects not one soul. Isn't that beautiful? Let me repeat. You are always safe. You are precious and you are so loved. You are never alone. And the perfect love of source energy neglects not one soul. Ah, beautiful. 
He also went on to state that love is, without a doubt, the basis of everything. Not some abstract, hard-to-fathom kind of love, but the day-to-day kind that everybody knows and the kind of love that we feel when we look at our spouse or our children or even our animals. In its purest and most powerful form, this love is not jealous or selfish, but it's unconditional. Now, many of us now on the planet cannot even understand what unconditional really means. And I personally think that this love that is unconditional can be felt through the heart's coherence, which is more powerful than just the human feeling of love. Through the heart's coherence, the feeling you get is more in line with the love of being so incredible, so overwhelming, that it's beyond our everyday human awareness. Truly, this is the connection of the human being to the source energy of all that is. I think this is why people come back so changed after they've had a near-death experience. Because once they're there, they could feel that unconditional love. And many of us here on planet Earth are totally unable to feel what that means. Because we're kind of in that materialistic kind of love and unable to fully grasp what this unconditional love is all about. Now, Dr. Alexander goes on to talk about the reality of realities, the truth of truths that lie and breathe at the core of everything that exists or will ever exist. We are powerful, energetic beings based on the expansion of of love. Those who can grasp this concept in their human form can achieve their life's purpose in this lifetime. So what he is speaking of and what all of the doctors and the professors that I've just mentioned are talking about is the law of attraction. If we can simply remember the source of our expanding power called love, we can harness this energy in our life to bring about dramatic changes to the world's collective consciousness. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? I think it is. And I think this is the key on how we shift the world. So now let's talk to Dr. Jeffrey Long, an oncologist who has made an extensive library of over 3,000 near-death experiences from around the world. If there's one person who fully understands the brilliance and the blessings of a near-death experience, it's Dr. Jeffrey Long. Welcome, Dr. Long, to Law of Attraction Talk Radio. I am thrilled to talk with you. Well, Jules, it's a real pleasure for me to be here tonight with you also. As you said earlier, this is certainly going to be a very interesting, exciting show. We certainly have a lot to talk about. The fear and sadness that you said that's been surrounding death, I think we're popping that bubble of illusion through the websites and our worldwide outreach. I always love hearing that we're changing the world. 
But this is so unique for another doctor to come out and talk about. Have you received any flack from Western medicine? You know, it's interesting. The substantial majority of physicians at this point in in time still do not accept that near-death experiences are medically inexplicable. Now, that's not based on their review of the literature or their careful consideration of arguments, pros, and cons. It's just simply based on the fact that they can't conceive that it's possible. Now, the interesting thing is, is when I sit down with physicians one-on-one or to a small group and they find out that this is the research area that I'm involved with and we start talking about some of the evidence, the substantial majority of physicians will say, oh, wow, that's interesting, I get it, there really is evidence justifying the reality of near-death experiences. It's really not one of these, uh, you know, woo-woo things, uh, you know, that a lot of people believe in without a lot of evidence behind it. And actually, the substantial majority of physicians, at least when I'm talking with them, come to accept the reality of near-death experience. It's all based on the evidence, Jules, and that's what our websites and research effort have been so focused on and so much about. When Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote her book, that's when I noticed things started changing in medicine. And then later, she came to the theory that there is no such thing as death. Is that your opinion as well? Yeah, there's no question about that in my mind. Uh, Understand, uh, I guess for the sake of your, uh, assume your listeners, most of them will know what a near-death experience it is, is, but just in the event that some don't, What I'm talking about here is studying experiences where people basically die. They may clinically die, their heart stops, or at least they're so severely physically compromised from some illness or trauma that they're unconscious. And yet, at this point of unconsciousness, they have a highly detailed, often very lucid experience that, as you mentioned earlier, is similar all around the world. So from my point of view, medically, it's absolutely impossible to have this kind of organized, lucid experience, which is so similar as shared among so many people at a time when, medically speaking, your unconsciousness, the very definition of unconscious means no consciousness, Mm. no ability to have any type of memory, and yet that's not what our near-death experiences are describing. I know that Western medicine tried to explain uh, the near-death experience away by saying it's kind of the drugs and the imagination within the brain that is having this experience. Would Could you explain yeah. this? If there, uh, there's really nothing that could account for, uh, for instance, several of the most evidential parts of near-death experience, about half of them early in the, in the uh, near-death experience, their consciousness separates from the body and is above their physical body most of the time, on the average, maybe about 15 feet. And from that vantage point, they can see their unconscious body or often their frantic resuscitation efforts. And this is ongoing while they're unconscious or even clinically dead. And part of the study that I've done is to see how accurate these observations are. We've studied hundreds and hundreds of near-death experiences that involve these types of observations. Now, medically speaking, I would be able to pick up on inaccuracy or false impressions or anything that could account for an unreal observation because of my medical background, and they're in this state so often describing their medical resuscitation procedures. What we're finding is about 97, 98% of the time, what they see and hear, or they're in that out-of-body state, usually early in the near-death experience, is absolutely accurate with no error whatsoever. And you can't explain that by hypoxia, which means low oxygen levels in the blood, or by brain chemistry, or by any other medical explanation at all. You simply cannot have 
that type of, of accurate observations while you're unconscious, it's medically inexplicable. Wow. You mentioned um, floating outside the body. Is this typical of a near-death experience? Uh, during an NDE, um, it's only about half of the time they actually have that. Now, the other typical elements of an NDE, that besides that initial out-of-body experience, people have heard the uh, archetypical traveling through a tunnel. Very often there's a bright light at the end of the tunnel. Um, they may encounter deceased relatives. They may review all or a portion of their prior life experiences. Uh, very often they come to a decision with other beings that they encounter about whether they are going to return to their body, and then they do so. So just in a very quick nutshell, that's the near-death experience elements. Very few near-death experiences have all those elements, and actually uh, uh, most NDEs have uh, only a few of those elements. But by the time you study large numbers of NDEs, and we have on, on our website, we've studied, believe it or not, 1,600 NDEs. pattern is extremely clear. These elements occur over and over and generally in a very consistent order. Wow, that's really fascinating. And it's from all over the world, too. Yeah, as you mentioned earlier, portions of our website that study NDEs have been translated into over 20 different foreign languages. Uh, that's all toward the credit of our webmaster, Jody that's been sort of her second full-time job to do this. But as a result of that, we have more experiences shared from all around the world in first person. In other words, people in non-English speaking countries that share in English or due to a team of, believe it or not, over 100 volunteer translators, we have people share in their native language, their NDE. We have our volunteers translated into English and then we share it back with the world. So as you said earlier, our website is absolutely the largest publicly available collection of NDEs by far, by orders of magnitude actually, than any other source in the world. So we, we're basing our observation not on wishful thinking or uh, based on what prior research has demonstrated, but this is purely unique research driven by studying the NDEs shared with our website. And it is exactly as I said, medically inexplicable. There is no explanation for it. Every shred of evidence that we're encountering through these 1,600 NDEs suggests that consciousness, who we are, our, our very being, survives our physical bodily death, that there is an afterlife and there's a wonderful afterlife. Wow, that's really comforting. So tell me how uh, another country, let's say Iraq, how do they interpret this near-death experience? Are the experiences similar to, say, somebody here in the U.S.? And that's a really critical question. In fact, one of the major study uh, components of our NDE website has been to study NDEs from very different, if you will, non-Western cultures. I actually wrote a portion of an academic book chapter on this very topic. We have portions of our website in uh, Arabic and other non-Western languages so that people can can read the questions in their own native non-Western language, uh, write it up, respond to it in their own non-Western language, and then we have volunteer translators share that. So we have some of the best way to observe and study NDEs from non-Western civilizations that's ever been possible before. And the answer is, well, the question, of course, it, that you're getting to before we get to the answer is, are these non-Western NDEs similar or are they dissimilar to English or Western NDEs, and of, of course the implication is very significant. If the NDEs are completely different, then of course that suggests they're culturally derived 
NDs are probably due to prior belief systems or, or what we all learned as part of our upbringing, and that would suggest a very different cause of NDEs. But, Jules, if the NDEs from non-Western countries are very, very similar to Western NDEs, well, what a shock that would be. That would suggest that there's a cause of NDEs that is independent of our cultural beliefs, our religious beliefs, and suggests that there's something much, much more going on. And the answer is they're remarkably similar. Wow. I've been absolutely astounded now with about 25 non-Western civilization NDEs and how amazingly similar that they are to, to Western NDEs. No question about that. That which causes NDEs, that which allows the experience of the NDE to unfold is clearly something separate from our prior belief system, what we were taught would happen after death, uh, from religious beliefs, from even radically different cultures from all around the world, all of them pointing to the same cause of NDEs, and that being that there really is something going on in this universe other than what we know on Earth, that there really is that higher consciousness, divine, or God, as it's all been variably called by NDEers themselves. Yeah, the incredible source of energy of all that is. Dr. Jeff, what what about those who may be blind? Have you any studies on that, and how does that correlate? Um, yeah, <laughs> sure do, Jules. Boy, it's almost like you got the best questions here. Let's talk about blind NDE. Uh, people that are that have vision for some number of years of their life and then become completely blind may have vision in their dreams or may have uh, you know may have some remembrance of visual impressions but jewels not people that are born blind from birth people born blind from birth absolutely physically impossible for them to have any visual impressions whatsoever they don't see in their dreams uh, they may have in their dreams may contain the sense of hearing or touch or olfactory gustatory sensations or remaining four senses but not vision it's impossible Yet, Near-death experiences have been described in people blind from birth. And, guess what? Stunningly visual near-death experiences. Not fragmentary, not disorganized, not maybe. But what they describe are near-death experiences that are typical of those that have vision. Same types of elements, uh, remarkable detail described. And I've actually spent a great deal of time talking with uh, a lady called Vicky, who is blind from birth. Uh, absolutely amazing to talk to these individuals blind from birth, they're, uh, they're, they're always so, so, so excited to talk about the one time in their life when they were able to see. The only thing I, none of us will ever be sure of is whether they see color. They describe the uh, objects and the beings and the other people that they saw as being different shades of brightness. Uh, and interestingly, too, the uh, one person I talked to blind from birth that had an NDE, Vicky, she describes her vision uh, as basically seeing things in 360 degrees, in other words, in all directions around her, which doesn't have the visual limitations that we all do with sort of the pie-shaped visual fields due to the location of our eyes and our eye sockets. But Vicky's not the only one. Other researchers have described other people blind from birth who've had remarkably visual NDEs. So they're seeing like they're deceased parents. They're seeing everything that they haven't seen before. Absolutely. Well, in fact, any everything they're seeing, they've never seen before. When I talked to Vicki, the first time she ever had any visual impression was in the emergency room right after her nearly fatal auto accident. And all of a sudden, boom, she saw herself lying down on a stretcher down below her. Now, she was in, as we described earlier, that out-of-body phase that's common early in the course of NDEs. 
and she saw a body lying down there. She had vision for the first time in her life. And Jules, imagine what her first reaction would be to be able to see for the first time in her life. You probably can't. She was terrified. This was so unfamiliar to be able to see, so outside of her entire life experience. And she was in her, I think she was about 22 years old at the time of this, that she was just absolutely frightened and horrified. It took her a while to calm down and correlate her sense of feel of her long hair and how she felt the ring on her finger. She finally was able to correlate what she had only known in her prior life through the sense of touch with what she was now seeing through, for the first time in her life, a sense of vision. And then and only then did she say, oh my, that's me down below. Wow, that's really amazing. So what if a person is deaf, they can't hear? The, again, you know, if you're deaf sometime later on in your life, your dreams will still have uh, auditory, that means sound, in them or voices or you can basically hear. So you still remember what, what hearing is like and you still have the ability to have memories or recollections involve hearing. But Jules, once again, if you're born without the ability to hear, then you don't know what hearing is. You don't know what sound is. It's, it's an abstraction. It's something that you can't even imagine. And yet... In our website, we've encountered the first person who was born deaf, born completely without the ability to hear, and yet had a near-death experience. What's very interesting about the NDE is that they were, she was communicating with actually a fairly large group of deceased relatives in part of his NDE, and yet he was able to understand them. A lot of NDEers call this telepathic communication, but this clearly was outside of any possible uh, ordinary sense that he'd had. It didn't involve any visual impressions. It didn't involve any tactile. It means touch, like Braille. He was just simply standing and communicating with a large number of deceased relatives, and he understood them perfectly, and in turn, he was understood perfectly by them. So it's somewhat analogous to hearing, and that's the first NDE of that type that's ever been described in the world's literature. So... Absolutely, no question about it. Regardless of the handicap you have, NDEs cross all physical boundaries and are independent of any prior life physical handicap that one might have. And, as you and your listeners can easily imagine, that's, again, some of the strongest evidence that NDEs are for real. Wow, that's just amazing. Let's talk about self-inflicted or suicide. Well, first of all, one thing that NDEers, that's near-death experiencers, if you will, I'll, I'll say it. One thing they come back with almost every single time if they've committed suicide and nearly die and come back and are able to tell about their near-death experience, those that have tried to commit suicide, had an NDE, and come back to share with the world, almost uniformly come back with the belief that suicide is not the answer, that they were wrong, in fact, they were extremely wrong, and that we need to live out our life on Earth no matter how difficult. So people that have an NDE as a result of suicide are much, much, much less likely to attempt suicide again later in their life, which is very, very interesting. Now, as far as the types of experiences that NDEers have that try to commit suicide and have their NDE as a result of that, they're actually identical to people that have their life-threatening event as a result of some cause other than suicide. Same types of elements... Uh, you know, a small percentage are frightening. The overwhelming majority are very blissful, peaceful. Uh, they may encounter uh, deceased relatives, tunnel, light. All the elements that occur in, from all causes of NDEs are all there. No question about it. People come back from that experience totally changed. They're 
mindset has changed. Yeah, and that's what the NDEers would say. If they, if they have an NDE, they re- that's the one critical thing that they learn. No matter how else people had their NDE as a result of any other life-threatening event, they never come back with such a uniform belief that suicide is wrong as, as uh, suicidal NDEers. No question about that. That's wonderful. So let's talk about in the event of a heart attack, what does a person experience? Here's what happens when you have a heart attack. At the moment the heart stops, when you have a heart attack, that means uh, cardiac arrest, and that means the heart stops. And once the heart stops, of course, blood flow to the brain stops immediately because you have to have the heart pumping to pump blood up there. From the time blood stops flowing to the brain, within 10 to 20 seconds, if you're measuring the electrical activity in the brain, through an EEG or electroencephalogram, if you will, fancy measurement of electrical activity of the brain, from the moment your heart stops beating, 10 to 20 seconds later, electrical activity goes absolutely flat. It's not detectable by any device. So you're unconscious, and above and beyond that, you have no electrical activity in your brain, and you can't have a conscious experience, or or can you? Because that's the time that people have their near-death experiences. At the time, they see themselves being resuscitated. Sometimes they can even see the electrocardiogram monitor documenting that their heart electrical activity is absolutely flat. This is a time people have these vivid, dramatic, and highly detailed NDEs when they shouldn't be, when they've had cardiac arrests or heart attacks, which is one of the more common causes, of course, of NDEs. But what does the person experience? I mean, when it happens, are they going up to the white light? Uh, what are they seeing? What are they experiencing being on the other side of the veil? I mean, again, no, no two NDEs are the same. And generally, the order of elements of an NDE are somewhat different. But in general, um, they, the, by the time they encounter a, a light that's often described as very bright and has sort of a mystical characteristic, it is light is used, but that's not really a good term because we all are familiar with light, and yet this is... Uh, it's light in the sense that it's bright, but it's very, very different from what we encounter from Earth. Uh, if you talk to NDEers, and this, this light, like I said, has a mystical component. There may be a sense of love or peace with it. Uh, they may sense that there's a being associated with the light, even if the being is not, not clearly defined. So that occurs. Uh, it may occur. Uh, they, almost always they have to have had gone through the out-of-body part of the near-death experience. Very often the light is at the end of a tunnel or they may encounter a light in some unearthly or other people have said heavenly realm. And at that point in time, the light may be there. And some of the people that have the deepest and most transcendent NDEs, they may actually have a sense that their their being or their consciousness is merging or becoming a part of the light. And that's also a very dramatic thing, uh, fairly uncommonly described, but again, very consistently described in terms of it being an encounter with something overwhelmingly loving, overwhelmingly knowledgeable, overwhelmingly compassionate. And uh, you know, even though I've read 1,600 of these, geez, I still get goosebumps every time I read some of these really dramatic encounters and, uh, and, and uniting with this uh, supreme mystical light that's in the ears described. So whether they die or they come back, is it safe to assume that this is the typical experience? Well, I, I believe that to be true. And in fact, some strong uh, evidence collaborating that impression comes from so-called shared near-death experiences. Occasionally, two people 
uh, encounter a life-threatening event at the same time. And we have an occasional NDE where there are basically two people in the out-of-body state at the same time as a result of both of them suffering severe injuries. They can talk, they interact, uh, they share concepts, and uh, are aware of, of what's going on, and yet uh, one of them may say, you know, one of them may be injured more severely than the other and die. And so physically, they, they die, die, and their consciousness doesn't return, while the other person who interacted with that be other person in the out-of-body state can return and tell the tale. So that's some of the strongest evidence that they are interacting with, sharing with a person who is, if you will, permanently dead in the out-of-body state during an NDE, so-called shared NDEs. Again, further strong evidence that that's the pathway that we all go through when we die. So I would assume that it's a common occurrence for the person who is dying to actually say at, right before the moment of death, I see the white light. Are there reports of this? Oh, absolutely. That's been referred to as deathbed visions, and a small percentage of people that are near death will have a fairly striking sudden return of consciousness. They'll suddenly be looking as if they're looking at something. Uh, they'll, they'll smile. They may, may sit up in bed even though they've been, been flat in bed for days. And if they're able to communicate, they'll often be uh, interacting with what either seems to be a deceased friend or relative of theirs or a spiritual being. And it's almost always a very, their, their eyes light up, they smile. It's a very joyous type of experience that they have very near the end of their life. Uh, and moreover, we have, again, because we've studied so many experiences, we have a small collection now of so-called shared deathbed visions. In other words, these uh, people that are dying may look up or, or see something, and yet one or several people around them sees the same thing. It's a light, uh, it's a voice, it's, it's some, sort of like some of the elements that you encounter in NDEs, and it's all part of the, probably all part of the spectrum of experiences that NDEs are, but no question that that absolutely really does happen. Uh, it's based on research I've done and, and plenty of other research that actually goes back to the 1800s. So there's no doubt that that's a, a part of what some, some lucky few experience. Gosh, one answer brings up another question. What about children? What do they experience? Well, you know, that's a really good question because it's, of course, children, and especially the very youngest children, say in the first few years of life, they wouldn't have religious beliefs firmly set up. They wouldn't have the ability to have a lot of cultural values established. They wouldn't have had any concept of what it's like to die to very young children. That's an abstraction and not anything that they can even grasp or understand. So a real interesting question is, what about the very youngest children in the first few years of life? What are their NDEs like? Well, because we have so many NDEs, we have the largest population of small children, say age five and under, that have ever been studied in the world. In the book I'm writing, and it will come out in about, oh, maybe a year, year and a half, we're actually going to release the results of the, of the studying a fairly good-sized group of these very youngest children. And the answer is their NDEs are strikingly similar to adults. They share their experiences decades later when they're adults. And by the way, it's been very well established that NDEs are not, details are not forgotten, nor are details embellished or added onto, even if NDEs are shared years to decades later. So from other research that's been done, we're very confident of the accuracy of these accounts shared even a long time later. 
So from our group of adults that shared these dramatic NDEs that they had as small children, again, very striking similarity to adults. Uh, again, completely consistent with the concept that all uh, converging lines of evidence point to, all our research lines of evidence suggesting that NDEs are not a product of prior beliefs or religious values or anything else. It seems to be what the overwhelming majority of NDEers themselves actually believe, and that is they've encountered the divine, God, higher consciousness, the all-powerful, uh, as that concept may be variously described. So what about the changes in people after they've had a near-death experience? And that's a real good question. The, the, it's so-called after-effects. After-effects refers to how the person changes after they've had this incredibly powerful close brush with death, an incredibly powerful experience, and then they return to life. Now what? Well, because the NDEs are so different from their pre-existing belief system most of the time, because it's so unexpected and such a powerful experience, it takes the NDEers on an average seven years to fully integrate the experience into their life. I mean, it's a low process, and it, because it, it involves some huge changes. There have been and there's been a number of studies on this, some very consistent changes in people's lives after an NDE. And what we find is that people tend to be, the NDEers, are more loving. They're more compassionate. They care more about positive relationships. They will avoid relationships that are not positive and embrace new relationships that are positive. They are noticeably less materialistic. Very often they change jobs in order to have a job that allows them to help other people you know, compassionately. And so there's some, and of course, indie ears almost uniformly don't fear death and almost uniformly believe that there is definitely an afterlife because, well, absolutely, after all, Jules, they experienced it. That's uh, very typical when you talk to an indie ear, especially if it's been many years after their NDE. That's what the, how they'll describe that they've changed. Oh, by the way, this isn't just a result of them nearly dying. There's studies that these after, so-called after-effects that I'm studying are talking about, studies that, that document these study people that nearly died but did not have an NDE, and then people that nearly died and had an NDE. And it's the people that had the NDE that by far and away are much more likely to have these types of changes. So it really is the NDE experience itself that leads directly to these overwhelmingly positive changes in their lives. You know, I've heard that when people die and they come back, some have developed a new talent that they haven't had before. It's, did you find this to be true? You no, know, it's really interesting. In the years, uh, in fact, I was just looking up the statistics on that today, about half come back believing that they have some psychic or paranormal gift following the NDE that they did not have before. Now, that's been very interesting to read about the variety of these types of gifts. Some people believe they have healing gifts. Uh, some people believe that they're more intuitive or precognitive. As best I can tell, one of the most common themes in the types of, of paranormal or psychic gifts that they have is an intuition that's probably related to, and this is uh, my hypothesis at this point in time, this isn't the product of research, but as best I can tell from studying large numbers of NDEs, I think these people become much more compassionate, much more loving. They become much more aware of people around them. And so I think as a result of that, what they may be calling intuitive is actually just a product of more compassionate awareness of people around them. And that can, can re reveal itself as being markedly intuitive. And that's one of the more common gifts. And yet 
some people describe healing. Uh, even some some people have gone on to become professional healers, uh, psychics. A number of psychics have had near-death experience that do that professionally, although uh, not not large numbers. But again, it's just you know pretty much any psychic or paranormal gift you can think of. At one point or another, a near-death experiencer believes that they've developed that gift following their NDE. So from your records, do the majority of the people that had the near-death experience, do they come back knowing that we are all connected, that we're all one? You, you've nailed it. You've really hit on one of the most striking things that NDEers come back with. And that's very interesting because... Judeo-Christian teachings, religious belief teachings, doesn't really talk, and, and virtually none of the major world religions or belief systems or values that we all share, almost none of those existing belief systems really emphasize the concept that we're all interconnected, we're all one, that we're all a part of each other at a level that's far beyond our physical awareness on this earth. And yet, in the ears, uh, when they talk about a concept of either being separate from others or one or connected with others, essentially uniformly, and again, this is, is a product of studying hundreds and hundreds of NDEs, all with that same type of concept, come back saying, we really are connected, we really are one, we really are all part of that greater source. And it really is very important to NDEers to understand that, to realize how if you harm another person, you're really in some very important way harming yourself. But conversely, if you're loving or compassionate to another person, you're actually loving and compassionate to yourself and really all other people as well. Uh, that is a profoundly significant, remarkably consistent finding among the over 1,000 NDEs that we've studied. And that's, that's really interesting because that, that clearly does not derive from pre-existing belief systems. That clearly is an important spiritual concept that seems to be important to for indie ears to come to understand during their experience. Now, you are an oncologist, and you have a lot of patients who are dying. So how has knowing all of this affected your practice and, and how you think about Oncology. My, and you're right, I am an oncologist. My type of oncology work is so-called radiation oncology, which is the use of radiation to treat cancer. And so you're absolutely right. There's a large number of people that I treat with radiation. Uh, the, the chance for cure is either extremely small or there is no chance for cure, and we're simply using radiation therapy to try to relieve symptoms and make them feel better. There's no question, as I look back over the eight years that I've been doing this work in the near-death experience arena, and it has definitely changed my attitude as a physician. I can't encounter these NDEs week after week after week with so many of them, I think without adopting some of the values, some of the beliefs that the NDEers themselves have. There's no question that I, as a physician, am much more loving, compassionate, caring for my patients, interested. I'll, uh, you know, it, it's easy for me to go the extra mile because that's, it's what I want to do. It's not like I have to do or a job. or It's just a part of, of who I am as a physician now and much, much more so than it was, say, 10 or 20 years ago when I was practicing medicine. And I think, especially as a doctor that fights that most feared diagnosis, uh, is one that has to take be the front line of, of handling patients like that. There's no doubt that studying NDEs has given me an immense amount of courage I don't fear the death of my patients because I know they're going to have an afterlife, and I know that afterlife will be wonderful. 
that has allowed me to be much more courageous, much more open with my patients. I can be much more that pillar of courage that they so much need when they're facing that life-threatening event than I ever could be. So there's no question that it has impacted me very, very positively in my daily practice of medicine. You know, and again, I think in some very mysterious way, I think any time you reach out to anybody lovingly and compassionately, even as a doctor to a patient, I am reasonably convinced in my year and a half of my practice here in Gallup, New Mexico, I'm seeing people have less side effects of my radiation therapy treatment that I've ever seen in my life. I'm remarkably good outcomes. I am... Uh, Again, this is a hypothesis, but I've certainly got a lot of evidence behind it at this point in time. I think I'm, you know, I almost hate to say this, but I think my ability to reach out to people compassionately and lovingly may actually be helping cure these people at a level that I couldn't do before. Wonderful. It's clear that this was your life's purpose. One last question, Dr. Jeff Long. Talk to me about Alzheimer's. I'm quite confident that people that have Alzheimer's, once they they physically die, that they're going to suddenly be very lucid and have a very alert experience. A good analogy is very, very young children. Very often in NDEs, their degree of consciousness and alertness and awareness and their mental functioning is far higher and, and far quicker than would be commensurate with their physical age. And I think we see the same thing with Alzheimer's. So there's almost, almost certainly from drawing analogy of people that are unconscious, clinically dead, or you know, extremely young or extremely ill people that have severe mental impairment at the time of their NDE, uh, no question that Alzheimer's would be expected to have the same kind of conscious lucid experiences. And certainly with after-death communications, unfortunately, Alzheimer's is not a rare cause of death. So we have a number of after-death communications where the person died of Alzheimer's. Really? And yet, in all of these after-death communications, in fact, I can't even think of a single exception, in all of these after-death communications where Alzheimer's disease uh, was the cause of death, the, the person, when they in, uh, are encountering the living person, they see them as the picture of health, full mental functioning, no hint of the impairment of their Alzheimer's disease. This is so wonderful. It's giving us so much information, and we only have a few moments left. You mentioned that you were in the process of writing a book. Yeah, our book is going to contain large numbers of research studies from analyzing this mammoth population of near-death experiences. So uh, about a, probably realistically about a year and a half. So stay tuned. It'll, uh, uh, it'll be out at some future time, but it'll be uh, uh, Evidence of Heaven is the tentative name of it. So that'll be a very much detailed discussion and presentation of what we've been talking about tonight. You know, we continue to study. We have so much data and, and uh, you know, so many people that have shared, been so wonderful sharing their experiences over all these years. You know, we do, you know, fairly major studies quite regularly, and we'll have them in the book or try to publish them at other, other uh, uh, outlets as we go along. You know, I've got to tell you that the work you're doing is changing and awakening consciousness. This is so important, and especially today. So thank you so much for being a blessing to this world. Well, I really appreciate it, too. These experiences are a profound message of hope, not only for the one experiencing it, but for the entire world. It's been a real honor to share that with your listeners tonight. Wow. This has been a really, really powerful show. Thank you to all my wonderful listeners who have stayed with me through these eight years. 
and stay tuned because the best is yet to come. Have a great week ahead. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye for now. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back next week with another great show from Law of Attraction Talk Radio. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send an email to jules at loaradionetwork.com and have a great week.